The following podcast is sponsored by the Zionsville Community Enrichment Grant. everybody, and welcome back to Safety. Just as a warning to all our listeners out there, this podcast contains discussions of mental health and suicide. From the start, we want to say that if you're having thoughts of hurting yourself, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 800-273-8255. And now, I'd like to welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Bryce, an emergency medicine resident at IU. So glad to have you back, Bryce. Glad to be back here again, Jack. Just so y'all know, Jack recently graduated from medical school and is now a resident in pediatrics at Indiana University. Congrats, Dr. Jack. Thanks so much. I'm quite a bit more tired than I used to be, but I'm excited to be back in the studio with y'all. Well, Jack, this month we will be talking about something I'm sure we both see quite a bit in the emergency department and outpatient clinics, and this is students facing mental health issues. Yeah, that's so true, Bryce. You know, mental health is a pretty broad category, and it includes a lot of different diseases like depression, anxiety, ADHD, addiction problems, OCD, schizophrenia, and many, many others. And this is a major health concern that impacts many high school and college-age students. According to the CDC, the prevalence of serious mental illness is greatest among teens and young adults ages 18 to 25. And unfortunately, the number of individuals suffering from mental health issues has been increasing. In 2007, about one in five college students had a mental health condition diagnosed in the past year, which has increased to about one in three in 2017. Yeah, those numbers are just staggering. And I know from my own personal experience in the hospital, we're seeing so much. Yeah, indeed they are. And with anything as complex as mental health, there isn't one specific factor that can account for this rise. There have been worrisome trends that show that increased exposure to social media and other health habits are directly linked to mental health concerns. Yeah, I think that's so true. You know, social media can be great. It can help people form connections and share experiences with each other, but it also carries some negative consequences. Increased exposure to social media has been shown to increase concerns with body image and lower self-esteem. Social media also carries the risk of cyberbullying, which can cause anxiety, depression, and suicide. When it comes to other health habits, sleep is one of the most important and overlooked. With increased expectations and distractions, teenagers are spending much less time sleeping, with over 10% not getting the necessary eight hours of sleep per night. Yeah, you know, I definitely fell into that group. In college, there were plenty of nights where I barely got four hours of sleep, and it can be really difficult to transition to college life because there's a lot of things that change, such as having increased time spent on schoolwork, having lots of social activities to go to, and having that responsibility to control your own life for your first time. I know that was something I struggled with in college. Also guilty of trying to do it all and sacrificing sleep here. However, sleep is needed in the teenage years to help the brain grow and develop appropriately. Think about how much smarter we would be if we got good sleep, Jack. (laughs) Also, getting to bed late with less sleep has been linked to increased anxiety and depression. Screen use, especially late into the night, has been suggested to worsen sleep quality and increase mental health concerns. I think you're totally right, Bryce. There's so many different factors that affect mental health, but I think it's hard to talk about any of them without acknowledging the elephant in the room, which is COVID. COVID has disrupted almost every factor of our lives and has had quite an impact on mental health. 
A recent report from the Healthy Minds Network found that half of students screened positive for depression and or anxiety in the fall of 2020. Those already facing mental health challenges found that their symptoms were more pronounced as the pandemic lingered on. Additionally, the stress of the pandemic has caused teenagers to experience anxiety and depression for the very first time. Even though it's disturbing that the number of teens and young adults facing mental health concerns is increasing, some good news is that there has been a decrease in the stigma around mental health and an increase in the number of people seeking treatment. This shows that when more people are open to talking about their mental health conditions and creating a positive culture, it can help others reach out to medical health professionals when they need help. So true. If you're struggling, it is important to reach out to your parents, your school counselors, or your doctor to see how they can help you. If you know somebody who might be going through a tough time, it's important to ask them and create a welcoming, non-judgmental space for them to open up and get them some help. That's a good point, Jack. To help us understand this better, we have Therese, who's a friend of the pod. She's going to come on the show and tell us about her experience and how she successfully faced her mental health challenges. My name is Therese Hinckley. I am newly 20 years old, and I am currently going into my third year at Ohio State. I am actually a Spanish major, and I hope to go to medical school here in the next couple years. I grew up in a wonderful home. I had two incredible parents, my mom and my dad. My brother, who is technically by blood my half-brother, my mom's first husband passed away when she was 28 and then remarried my dad. Shortly after I was born came my two younger sisters and growing up we were, I guess, three peas in a pod, three best friends and a really fun, fun time growing up. That's the best word that I can use to describe it. I think it was second grade that a teacher said something. It was it was a flippant comment, something about how I was loud. Shortly thereafter, in the next year or two, I started acting out a little bit more in classes. It's still very confusing as a child, you know, knowing like, why can't I sleep at night? Or why can't I focus in classes? My parents initially reached out for me to get help. It was for ADHD. It was for my teachers constantly telling them that I was too loud in class or that I couldn't focus, things like that. Eventually in fourth grade, I first went to a psychiatrist to sort of try and figure out what was going on. And I went through various doctors. So by fifth grade, I had been on I think eight different medications over the course of 10 to 12 months, something like that. When you're at that age, it felt so normal because that's all I'd ever known. I was so young and I was going to these doctors and I was just doing what I was told, going where I was supposed to go. So your friends sort of make jokes and they're like, oh, I hope Therese doesn't take her medicine because she's so funny when she doesn't take her medicine or things like that. So quite honestly, it felt like a superpower. I would say that it was around then that transition probably between elementary and middle school that I started to realize that maybe things weren't a hundred percent normal. Maybe I wasn't necessarily like some of the other kids. And then it started to feel a little bit more isolating as I got towards the end of my high school years and sort of started to realize, oh, like <laughs> this isn't necessarily, I don't like to feel this way, that sort of thing. As I got older, living with my parents was 
good because they were able to see if I was really stressed out and things like that. But I did internalize a lot of my emotions and they really started to, I guess, implode when I moved away from my parents and I didn't have that built-in support system. And so having them to lean on was incredible, but then you go and live by yourself and it's a whole new ballpark. Growing up, I never spoke to my friends about it, not in middle school, not in high school. The first memory I have of ever telling anyone about any struggles I had was after I graduated from high school. I remember I was in the car with my best friend and we were leaving another friend of ours graduation party. And she'd made a comment that I didn't eat cake when we were there, something like that. And she meant it as a joke, but that was sort of the first time on our way out is that I looked at her and I said, hey, I've actually been struggling with bulimia for the past couple years. And that comment sort of didn't necessarily hurt me, but comments like that can be kind of harmful to me. And this is someone that I know, love and trust very much. So that's sort of the first time I ever spoke to someone about any of the internal struggles I had. And then shortly thereafter, we got into a conversation about anxieties that we had going to college and things like that. And that opened the door so that conversations after that became comfortable. But it wasn't until I was 18 years old that I ever spoke to anyone about anything I was struggling with. I think there is extreme power in having someone to relate to. That being said, I think each person has unique experiences. But this particular friend didn't necessarily struggle with eating disorders. So it wasn't her relating to me that necessarily helped as much, but she is the best listener I know. So her listening and supporting me and then doing little things when we would go out from there on to make me feel comfortable. As I started to meet new people, I found different support in different ways. So when I met my other friend who we sort of bonded over struggling with eating disorders, that was a different type of support. So I think that different people have different tools to offer when you're going through something or sharing something like that. These people, as I started to open the doors and talk to them, knew my heart and knew ways that I had struggled so that when I sort of started to spiral back downwards, they were there to notice some of the same warning flags that things were happening again. Exercise at first was not an emotional release for me whatsoever. It was sort of compounding with bulimia, which people think of purging and the only thing that they think of is making yourself sick, which of course is one way, but there are other ways it can be excessively exercising as well. And that was sort of when I got so disgusted with myself, like, oh, I can't believe I'm doing this. I would try to cope using other mechanisms that aren't conventionally advertised as part of the disorder. It was this really excessive, impulsive, and there was no rhyme or reason to it. I'm going to run around my block as many times as I can, and it would be at like 11 p.m. at night, like absolutely ridiculous. But in my mind, even though this wasn't making any difference, that was what I needed to do to be beautiful. And exercise always sort of fit into my day-to-day -day routine. And then by the time quarantine hit, it was, if I don't have 60 minutes of exercise every day, I have failed myself miserably for the day. College is hard. Moving away from family is hard. But I went into it with my head high and I was like, I can totally do this. And then you're on your 
40th day in the same box of a room doing the same thing that you've done every day and it's like Ooh, like I don't like this I have vivid memory of literally I was laying on my apartment room floor it was like 6 p.m. on a Thursday and I remember I was just laying in the middle of my bedroom floor and I was just sobbing and I had no idea what was going on and my roommate at that point was like I don't know if she likes me she never wants to go out with me and I called my mom and Obviously she knew something was wrong because I was crying and very upset, but I, I literally remember the only thing I could say to her was like, I was so angry because I was like, why am I broken? I wasn't talking to friends. I had been in my apartment room without windows for at that point, probably three weeks with literally just leaving to go to my kitchen. So, and it was isolating because the thought of going out stressed me out more, but also the thought of not having friends to go out with made me sad. So it was a really, awful cycle of loneliness and then anxiety about loneliness and not doing the things that I loved at that point I hadn't sung I hadn't listened to music in probably two or three months and I will go ahead and say that I don't know that it was a hundred percent related but I'd really fallen out with any form of faith at that point and had fallen out with the idea of God, the idea of anything greater than myself because I couldn't reconcile how, if someone was greater, how they would leave me to feel so alone. I think that it was a mixture of all of those things and the physical flags being, you know, hadn't gone to church, hadn't been talking to any of my friends, hadn't been doing any of the things that I loved. Literally my screen time on my phone was far higher than it ever should have been all of those things and they were all happening at once. I, I remember I went to sleep and I woke up the next morning and I remember looking at the ceiling and thinking like, life wouldn't be this bad if I didn't wake up tomorrow. The day to day just like absolutely sucks. <laughs> and that seemed like the easiest way to get out of things. This remained to be a thought for several months every time anything got hard i would always sort of lean back to that thought of okay well i don't necessarily have to do anything i don't have to be here tomorrow and that's a really awful and terrible thought that i had but it was really like the feelings of hopelessness and loneliness were really so all encapsulating that it seemed like the best option and it got to the point where i was literally sitting there thinking like how could i do this to make it easy and how could I do this so that no one I love would have to find me. I knew it wasn't healthy, but it also felt natural because there was no, I mean, there was no other solution. It was in April after I lost a friend. I remember speaking with my father and he looked at me and said, I just don't understand how it could ever get so bad that someone would feel like that's their only option. And I remember my jaw dropping because I looked at him and I was like, so you've never felt that way? And I don't know if that's something that's isolated to our generation and the struggles that we're going through uniquely, but seeing the hurt that the entire community felt and sort of those moments realizing how blessed and lucky I am to have the siblings and the family that I do, made me look at life with a gratitude that I hadn't before. 
and made me look at life seeking out the moments of joy. And ultimately it was that that shifted my mindset. And that's not to say that it's not still a struggle in the day to day, but I definitely feel like this past year has given me a perspective on the joys of life that I don't want to miss, that I might not have sought out before. I know how much my friends and family would want to help me. I can't burden them with the task of making me better. And so it's at that point that I really started to actively seek out professional help in therapy. And unfortunately, I know this is the case at Ohio State. It might be the case at several other campuses, but it was discouraging at first because the wait list for university services are so long and inaccessible to many students. If you're struggling, that is by far not your only option. And the way that I found my resource was I literally just had my six month follow up with my pediatrician and I, well, at that time pediatrician, and I was just like, hey, I really need help. Can you set me up with a therapist? And literally by the next morning, I had five names of individuals in my email inbox and I was able to schedule an appointment very quickly. The best advice I ever received about therapy was to do as many first dates, quote unquote, as you can. And really just having that built-in friend who's not just a friend, but is going to give you the tools and resources that you need. And that there's no shame in seeking out those professional resources. I didn't really get into journaling until July of 2020. Slowly, I started writing once every couple days, and then it turned into once every other day, and then it really became every single day. It became my morning routine. I found that when I started my day writing and just reflecting, my days were a million percent better. So the journaling really evolved into this, I'm gonna write a book. I don't know how I'm gonna do it, but I'm gonna do it. So I published the book, it's called Through the Darkness. I published it in June and it's essentially just a stream of consciousness of my thoughts. It's very conversational. It's 100% an open door into my mind. It's sometimes like very, it can be choppy at sometimes, but it's so honest. And that's sort of how my journaling sort of evolved. And now I'm sort of entering into a space of more of a poetry songwriting type thing, but it's a continuous evolution, but one that I don't ever see ending for me. People ask me about the boyfriends chapter because I feel like it's 100% the boyfriends that detracted from my relationships with family and friends and then sort of sent me spiraling a little bit more. But it, it really all is sort of a cycle because I found myself when I was struggling seeking to fill that hole with anything. And when you're isolated from the people you're used to go to for support, the next thing I went to was, oh, I need a boyfriend, obviously. And then I would seek all of these guys out, I would settle, and then it would perpetuate it because then my mind, I'm sitting here thinking, I need to make this guy realize that we could be like, we could be awesome, but I don't want to lose him. This is 100% my responsibility. So then I sit there and that's all I'm focusing on. And then I get so upset when he's not giving me the attention that I want that he has suddenly become my whole life and my whole life is completely just forgotten. Like I have forgotten to tend to any and all of my needs, which 
it's horrible, but when you're in the thick of it, that's all you can think about. So it is 100% a cycle. And I think that I call myself actively single now because I am literally trying to date myself. I will go to the movies by myself. I'm trying to learn how to enjoy my own presence. I wish that I would have seen it when I was entering these things, but I feel like going into several different failed sort of situationships, I like to call them, taught me more about myself than I ever could have learned alone. I know for me, part of the reason I published the book was because, you know, when I was in those throes of feeling like absolute crap, the only thing I wanted was to read something, to hear something, to feel something that made me realize that I was not the only person going through what I was going through. So it's twofold. I mean, it's the same thing in that I hope that people hear this and I think there's such power in relating to someone that I hope that anyone who hears this that finds even just a seed of something that they relate to knows that A, it's okay and perfectly normal to feel like your life isn't what's advertised by everyone on social media all the time. And B, that you don't have to feel that way. It's not a punishment for life and that there are tools and resources to make the day-to-day -day not just bearable, but enjoyable. So that's what I would hope that anyone listening could get from this podcast today. Thank you so, so much, Therese. Your story is inspiring, and you are very brave to come forward to share your struggles and how you face them head on. I know that by sharing your vulnerabilities, others that are currently struggling will see hope for themselves. Yeah, I really couldn't agree more. It's hard enough to have a mental health challenge, and I think it's even harder to share it with other people, let alone on a podcast. So thank you so much. I was particularly interested in your comments about where to start when seeking professional help. Unfortunately, I know many students may not know how or where to get started, including what kind of provider they need, where to begin, or even what kind of questions to ask when seeking help. To answer some of these questions, we are pleased to have with us today Christy Fogg. Christy is a licensed clinical social worker and a mental health therapist. Welcome, Christy. We are glad you are here to help us out. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here with you both today. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do, Christy? Sure. Like you said, I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I own a private practice called Journey to Joy Counseling, where I provide therapy and consulting services. I love working with teens and young adults, individuals, couples, and families. Some of my specialties include working with those with depression and anxiety, individuals who are going through different life transitions, and I also love working through family of origin issues. Christy, thanks so much for coming on the show. We're so excited to have you on here. My first question for you is, can you tell the age when mental health issues become more recognizable? Yeah, absolutely. So mental health issues tend to onset anywhere from the adolescent years to the preteen years on up to adulthood. So we see around 50% of mental health issues start by around age 14, around 75% start by age 24. So sometimes this can be due to life situations, whether that's like an unhealthy home environment, going through a bad breakup, or even just a big life transition or change. Sometimes there can be absolutely nothing wrong in your life and you can still struggle. There is a biological component to mental health. So what I mean by this is that 
the chemicals in your brain can become imbalanced and that creates an issue with mood regulation. So then that can lead to irrational thoughts, some sadness, impulsivity, loss of focus, loss of joy, or even anxiety and panic attacks. So mental health issues can literally hit at any age. I've worked with adults before who have never, ever experienced anxiety in their lives and then all of a sudden find themselves in an emergency room thinking they're having a heart attack, only to find out it's actually a panic attack and had no words to be able to describe what they're going through because they've never experienced anxiety before. Mental health issues, they don't discriminate. So every socioeconomic level can struggle, um, as well as every race, gender, and ethnicity. Your genetics also tend to play a factor. So if you have mental health issues in your family, there's also an increased risk that you may struggle at some point in your life as well. Wow. It sounds like there's a ton of different factors that influence mental health, and that's probably part of the reason why it's so common. Absolutely. How can a student recognize a mental health issue in themselves? I would imagine that it can be confusing when these feelings start to creep into their consciousness. The hard thing is, is that it can definitely look different from person to person. So depression and anxiety in particular are the most common issues we tend to see in this age range. Some telltale signs of depression are anger and irritability, sadness, feeling like you're in a funk, no motivation, loss of joy or pleasure in things that you used to enjoy, isolating, changes in appetite, sleeping more, sleeping less. Some people also describe depression as physically hurting as well. Um, This can, again, look different from person to person, but it may present as something like fatigue, joint pain and aches, and really bad headaches. Anxiety presents as both physical and or mental. So some people have both. Some people only have either or. Physically, you may experience heart racing, You may feel like there's an elephant on your chest. You may have some stomach issues or indigestion, shakiness or hot and cold sweats. Mentally, you may feel overwhelmed. You may replay things over and over in your head. You may lose sleep as your thoughts race at night, or you may struggle to focus on simple tasks. Sounds like there's a ton of different symptoms to be on the lookout for. Let's say I was a 17-year-old high school student and I started having some of those symptoms that you mentioned. How would you recommend that I go about getting help? And would my parents have to know about this or could I keep it between you and I? There are many ways to go about finding a therapist. You know, obviously I would recommend asking your friends and family for help first. If you are a high school student, the counselors or the school social workers in the guidance counseling office are a great resource. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes they can help bring your parents in on the conversation. They can provide referrals to clinicians if that's appropriate. They may also be able to provide some support or a safe place for you to be able to have just some downtime or some quiet time at school if you're struggling when you're at school. Yeah, that sounds great. So students that are 18 and older do not have to divulge treatment to their parents. However, I will tell you, if you use your parents' insurance benefits for treatment, your parents may receive an explanation that may show charges for therapy. So what about somebody who's under 18? Do they have to tell their parents they're using counseling services? So if they are seeking out the guidance counselor or the school social worker at school, they do not have to divulge that. Now, there are certain things that may be shared within the confines of that relationship where 
the school social worker or the counselor may say, hey, I think it's time to bring your parents into this. Mm -hmm. So if they have concerns that you, the need that you have for services is greater than what they can provide there in the school setting, they may say, hey, let's bring mommy and or dad in, let's bring parents in, and let's talk about like what's going on and what are the services available. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously, if you are saying things that are concerning, like I'm having suicidal thoughts, I have a plan or anything like that, um, parents will be notified pretty quickly in situations like that. Right. That makes a lot of sense. So it sounds like the school counselor or the school social worker is a great place to start if mm -hmm. you're somebody in high school who's struggling with some issues. What would you say if the parents are kind of the big problem? So obviously that complicates things a little bit. That's a situation where, you know, as a student, you are limited, unfortunately, to the services that you can get if your parents won't allow you right. to seek services. That doesn't mean you can't speak to the school counselor or the school social worker. But a lot of times what we find is the parents in your situation may be part of the problem, but they may not be the whole problem. Okay. And so if you're still struggling with some depression or anxiety or just feelings of being overwhelmed or stressed out, like still seek therapy or still seek out that relationship with a school counselor or a school social worker and try to work through some of those other issues in addition to working through whatever parental problem you may right. be having yeah. too. It's always easy to blame mom or dad. <laughs> yes. So Christy, what are the various types of mental health providers? What's the difference between a therapist, psychologist, and a psychiatrist? There are many types of mental health providers. A therapist, which is what I am, is master's level, and we provide counseling and or therapy, kind of the same thing, just different names. So psychologists provide therapy. Many psychologists are also trained to provide assessments and testing as well. For example, if you think you would like to have testing done to find out if you have ADHD or if you're on the autism spectrum, or something along those lines, a psychologist can actually run a battery of tests and assessments and provide a diagnosis and treatment feedback. Psychiatrists, on the other hand, are actual medical doctors. So they have further training on the brain and brain chemistry. So most psychiatrists just prescribe psychotropic medications, but there are some out there that also do provide therapy as well. Are any of the other mental health professionals able to prescribe medications like therapists or psychologists? So no, we are not able to do that. There are psychiatric nurse practitioners, though, that can prescribe medication. And they are really knowledgeable in the brain chemistry and how the medications work with that. And I would assume that, you know, if you were seeing a psychologist and they thought that you needed medications, of course, like you said, they'd refer you to the right people. What are the various types of therapy that somebody could receive? So this is an interesting question because, honestly, the sky is the limit. <laughs> so every session is different. I think the misconception with therapy and help for mental health is that there has to be something really wrong with you for someone to go to therapy or that you have to be feeling really bad. But that's actually not the case at all. So like I previously mentioned, depression and anxiety – are probably the most common reasons that people start therapy. Mm -hmm. However, I work with a ton of clients who come for other reasons. So I'm just going to throw out some examples of some okay. of the type of people okay. I work with. Maybe you're struggling because you keep dating the wrong type of person <laughs> and you can't figure out why. Maybe you have a difficult relationship with your parent or your parents. Maybe you're unsure what boundaries need to be set with them, or maybe you don't even know what boundaries are at all. 
sometimes the stress of school and the pressure of graduation and the steps that come after that can feel insurmountable. Some have a history of trauma in their backgrounds, and they realize that it's actually impacting them present day in a negative way, and they want to feel better and be healthier. So really, there are so many different types and reasons to come to therapy. The point I want to make is that you don't have to be in an awful place to start. So if you're feeling unsettled, if you're overwhelmed, if you're stressed out, if something just feels off, therapy can definitely help. It's the therapist's job to dig in further. So even if you're not sure what you're feeling or why you're feeling it, reaching out to a therapist can be a great first step. Certainly better to get help earlier than later. Yeah, I I think that's such an important point to stress. I know, Bryce, you and I in the hospital see a lot of the more severe kind of emergency side of Mm -hmm. mental health. But in speaking to a lot of those patients, I think that they would have wished they would have started the process earlier when things weren't as bad. I think that's just such an important point to stress is that it doesn't have to be something crazy, something out of control to seek therapy. Even some of the little things can be worked on. So I think that's a great point. And those little things can build on to each other too. Oh yeah. The stress of graduating can build on to existing stresses that existed that were before there too. How can students go about telling their parents or guardians that they're struggling? I imagine that can be really difficult for a lot of people. So I always think that honesty is the best policy. I feel like it's so much more common and acceptable to use terms like mental health or depression or I need help than it was like, for example, my parents' generation, right? You know, in order to kind of explain what you're going through, like put words to how you feel physically, what you're feeling emotionally, and then also explaining like how it's negatively impacting your ability to function. Sometimes I have clients who open up to their parents and they're fearful that their parents may invalidate them or shame them. Unfortunately, this does happen sometimes. But other times, surprisingly, they find their parents are like, oh, yeah, me too. I know how that feels or I remember feeling that way when I was your age. It can be really validating to have someone else say, I've been there. I know what this feels like. Now, on the other hand, if you do get a negative response, please, please don't let that keep you from getting help. Mm -hmm. I often tell my clients, it's not that your parents are bad people. It's just that they don't know what they don't know. If they've never experienced mental health issues, if they've just numbed themselves or they've avoided problems for years, they may not be able to understand why you're struggling. The really cool thing is I think this current generation of high schoolers and college-aged young adults, they're really amazing in the sense that they were raised with mental health being an acceptable topic of conversation. So it's okay to say, I'm struggling, and you'll usually find five other people going, yeah, me too, (laughs) right? And, And we've normalized getting help, which I think is incredible. Are there any resources for parents if they're having a difficult time understanding where their kid is coming from? NAMI is the National Alliance on Mental Illness. So that is a great resource. There's so many articles, research-backed, evidence-based studies about um, young adults and mental health. Even just reaching out to a therapist themselves would be a great place to start if they're struggling to understand why my kid is struggling. Mm -hmm. I think having a mental health therapist go, hey, this is something that you may not have ever experienced yourself, but this is how it feels to them, and this is how you can best support them. So whether that's 
concurrently being a part of their kids' therapy or getting their own therapist, I think either way is a step in the right direction. One question we see a lot when we do our live programming is we'll have students ask us, what do I do when a friend tells me that they're struggling? And specifically, usually that friend also says, don't tell anybody. What's your advice in that situation? So that's a sticky situation to find yourself in, right? (laughs) So obviously, you can encourage them to get help and just be open and honest about your concerns. The hard thing is, unless they are really a threat to their own safety, you cannot force them to get help. But you can tell them how much you care and, Mm -hmm. and that what you are seeing in them is worrisome, and you can lend a listening ear. If they do make statements about... I think I just want to die, Um, I've been having suicidal thoughts, or they share that they have a plan, you need to take immediate action. So calling the police for a welfare check, you know, reaching out to a family member. If you're on campus or you're at school, reaching out to an adult, an RD, or you can even call the suicide hotline for help. I think it's always important to respect your friend's trust in yourself, but if it comes at the cost of their life, I think that's a trade that's not worth making. And so, yeah, like you said, if you see any of those warning signs um, talking about hurting themselves or hurting others, that's when it's time to get some other help involved. Absolutely. So if you ask someone about how they're doing with regards to their mental health or anything like that, or if you ask about if they're feeling suicidal, will that increase the chances that they'll take their own life? Asking them is not going to be the catalyst for them attempting. In fact, you bringing it up to them may actually pull them out of their own negative thought spiral and help them remember that there are people that care about them. Hmm. Wow. How can you tell if your friend or your roommate or somebody you care about is suicidal? Okay, so I should probably start off by differentiating between someone having suicidal thoughts and someone being actively suicidal. Yeah, definitely. So it's common at times um, for someone who's depressed or anxious to have suicidal thoughts. These thoughts may be disturbing to them or they may be upsetting. These individuals actually have no desire to die. They may just feel really hopeless, like they're never going to feel better or their life is not going to get better. Okay. Being actively suicidal means that the individual has considered suicide as an option and has created a plan of some sort for how they would attempt, and they also have the ability to act out on that plan. So if you recognize that someone you care about is severely depressed, that's obviously cause for concern. Right. Some kind of suicidal... Signs may include a lot of hopelessness, deep despair. If they've experienced a recent trauma or a crisis in their life, that's also a big warning sign. If they're being impulsive or they're making dangerous decisions. So, for example, if they are practicing unsafe sex and they've increased drug or alcohol use or they're driving recklessly. Another sign is if they've started to make plans such as giving away possessions, Mm -hmm. um, writing letters to friends or family, or they start cleaning their room and getting rid of things. So keep in mind that not every person that's suicidal is going to do any or all of these behaviors. There are people that are suicidal that you would have no idea. Mm -hmm. But it's certainly helpful to know some of the more common signs, and especially it seems like keying in on if they're starting to make a plan is something where a red flag should really be going Mm -hmm. off. So in the awful scenario that someone has taken their own life or they've died in some accident or something, what recommendations do you have for their friends and fellow classmates? 
Well, first of all, if you've lost a friend to suicide, I'm truly very sorry. It is such a difficult grief to process, and it can be really hard to wrap your brain around suicide and the loss of a loved one in that way. Please reach out to family and friends and to your support system. So go to therapy, get on medication if you need to. Keep talking about the person and keep their memory alive. Some other ways would be to support a cause like the Out of the Darkness Walk or even volunteer for the suicide hotline. But most of all, I think it's important that you take care of yourself and that you know that your feelings and your grief are valid and normal. So Christy, can you touch on how when teenagers go off to college, they might be exposed to a new environment with new experiences and how someone experiencing mental health issues might experience those differently in a college setting versus at high school? Yeah, absolutely. So obviously, with going to college, you gain a new sense of freedom that you don't have. You don't have mom and dad saying, hey, it's 11 o'clock, you need to <laughs> lights out. Like, yeah. uh, hey, your alarm's going off, you need to go to class. So a lot of times what we find is individuals who already struggle with mental health issues go onto a college campus and they have access to freedom, they have access to partying mm. and drinking, drugs. And so you have to remember that alcohol is a depressant and that drugs also mess with your brain chemistry. And so mm. if you're already having mental health issues, that's only going to exacerbate the issue. If you're skipping class and you're falling behind, that can also increase depression and anxiety. And then it's just a vicious cycle of how do I pull myself out of this when I'm already dug too far of a hole? Some of our listeners may be less comfortable with a face-to-face, in-person conversation. Are there any other ways that people can get therapy and maybe avoid that face-to-face conversation, at least in the beginning? Oh, there absolutely are. So I actually am 99% virtual in my practice, and I have been since COVID. I was forced to initially, and I actually love it. Um, So I am staying that way for the foreseeable future. And there are a ton of therapists in private practice out there who are also virtual. The nice thing about telehealth is that you can work with a therapist who physically is actually in another state as long as they are licensed in the state that you are in Mm. and you are physically in that same state, then you can work with them. So that opens up the possibilities and the opportunities to find somebody who may be a really great fit for you that you wouldn't be able to work with face-to-face. Yeah, and I think fit is such an important part of the therapy process. And I think that's especially important for some of our our students listening that go to college away from their hometown and are back and forth between two locations a lot. So I think that's a great, you know, benefit that came out of COVID. What if that student goes to a different state for college and their therapist they have a good relationship with is not licensed in that state? What would you recommend for that student? Unfortunately, our mental health laws have not caught up with how much people are moving around. There are a lot of us who are licensed in more than one state. Unfortunately, they have to find somebody else. So I have a client who went to school in Ohio this year, and she would literally drive across the Indiana border and sit in a McDonald's parking (laughs) lot and have her therapy session in her car with me. Yeah, that's some serious dedication. You must be doing something right. Oh, well, thank you. (laughs) 
So Therese mentioned in her story that she had a hard time getting help in college, mostly because they were so backed up. And I know personally, a lot of our mental health resources are really struggling with COVID. What would you recommend somebody should do in that situation? Yeah, so unfortunately, that is a real-life issue going on right now. So many college campuses have counseling centers, but they only have so much staff, and there's such a high demand right now. So there are partnerships that a lot of colleges have with companies, and what they do is the school counselors put in the criteria that you're looking for, and then these third-party companies connect the students with therapists all over the state. So whether it's somebody local they can do face-to-face therapy with or somebody just within the state that they can do virtual with. So there are other options. The counselors on the school staff also have referrals as well. Unfortunately, that is just the reality that we're living in with COVID right now. So Christy, what would you recommend if someone is able to get connected with a counselor but they're just not jiving so great. You know, sometimes that happens. I will usually start off a first initial session with a client saying, I am not everybody's cup of tea. And so you may get through this session and you may feel like, I'm not sure that we're gonna have a good working relationship. And that's okay. That means that there's somebody else out there that may be a better fit. So I would kind of look at it like a job interview. You're interviewing these therapists to see, like, are you someone that I can connect with, that I can be vulnerable with, that I can see myself being challenged by? Um, Do I see myself growing? And do you have the skill set? Do you have the expertise in what I'm looking for? And so if that's not the case, that doesn't mean that the therapist is a bad therapist. It just means they're not the right one. And so don't give up. Keep looking ask that specific therapist for a different referral, or maybe you just find someone on your own, but keep reaching out. Don't give up. There is somebody out there who will be a good fit. Yeah. Good point. And I think it's a great question. There's a lot of research out there on this. No matter the type of therapy that you're going to get, if you don't like the person that's giving you that therapy, it's not going to be effective. And so it's a great thing to try and find somebody that you really connect with. Mm-hmm. That therapeutic relationship is so incredibly important. So if you're not connecting with the person, you're going to be limited in what you can take away from each of your sessions. So again, there has to be a working relationship there, and you have to feel comfortable with the person that you are basically spilling your whole entire life story to. And it's not a personal flaw if you don't engage well with your therapist. Like you said, there's so many different types of people out there, so many different personalities. It may take a little time to find somebody you really like. Yep, absolutely. Just don't give up. I think that's a really good perspective to have that it's almost like a job interview where you're in the position of power looking for someone to help you get through whatever you're going through. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, a very special thank you to you, Christy, for your insight and to Therese for sharing your story. I think this is such an important topic to address, and I'm really excited we got to do this pod today. I know from my personal experience, I really needed a lot of help in college. I did therapy, I did medications, and it really helped me through a difficult spot in college, and I'm so glad I was able to have those resources. And I'm glad we could talk today about mental health and clarify some of those myths and misconceptions about it. It's so important to eliminate that stigma and have people feel comfortable about coming into therapy and talking about things. Very true, Jack. And thank you again to all of our guests. I just want to remind everyone listening that if you find yourself in a crisis, there is help available 24-7, 365, including nights and holidays. 
The emergency department of your local hospital is always a safe haven, and we're happy to help. And once again, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline can be contacted at 800-273-8255. Yeah, and don't forget, your school counselors are great resources for you. And for those of you in college, virtually every college campus offers comprehensive mental health and general counseling services. So remember to spread the word and stop the stigma, including sharing this podcast with your friends. Thanks so much, everybody, for listening. Safe Tea is brought to you by Rachel's First Week. Executive producer, Mike Wilson from Airborne. Sound engineer, Ben Vodder. And a very special thanks to American Medical Response, NASCAR, and healthcare initiatives for their financial support of this podcast. Visit us on Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, and Twitter at hashtag Rachel's First Week. Don't forget the A in Rachel, spelled R-A-C-H-A-E-L. We want to hear from you, so contact us at rachelsfirstweek.org. Don't forget to subscribe now so you don't miss a single episode of Safe Teeth. This is Georgia signing off. See you next time.